with a title, Significant Life Events. And what I want to encourage you to do in listening this morning is uh, I've minimized the, some of the teaching dynamic we normally incorporate into the notes and all the passages and quotes, and uh, we'll still have some of that, and I want you to write that down. But Significant Life Events for you is going to be significant for what happened to you this past year. And so you're going to need to listen through the grid of your own life tonight or this morning. And how did God want you to connect with things that happened in your life? So I don't want you to detach too much and follow somebody else's story or notes. I want you to be listening carefully for what it is that God wants to communicate to you. Because as you're going to see today, I think true for myself, I believe true for many of us, um, Life happens and we didn't quite get all that we should have out of it. And here's the reality. We're at the end of 2009 and, and life has happened this year. Right? Stuff went on with us this year. There were things that we looked forward to, that we anticipated. There were things that we were scared to death about. There were things that we were concerned about. There were things that we were ambitious for. There were things that we shrunk away from in fear. Now, that's true for all of us. We can take for granted that it's true. Life happened and there were events, significant events in our world. question for us individually is, how did we interpret those events? The ones that kind of come to mind for you right now. As you survey 2009, and if you have a memory like mine and your life moves like mine, you're wondering... Yeah, what did happen in 2009, right? Well, go with me there for a moment and think, okay, what were significant events that happened to you in 2009, and, and how did you interpret them? Did they, did they leave a mark on you? Did they somehow shape you? Because, you know, you've arrived here after how many years on earth, you know, whether it's 15 or 20 or 55, life has been pressing on you and shaping you. And so you kind of are the way you are because of many of the events and things that have happened over the course of your life. So that that happened again this year. 2009 had shaping events in it. Maybe for you, you had, um, there were gains in your life. Maybe you you gained a child this year. You had a new child, like Lemoyne's. Or maybe you got engaged this year. Significant life events major shaping influence of a person that you wanted to commit your life to for the rest of your life. Maybe you got married this past year and realized living together is a little different than just dating uh, each other. And so that was a significant life event. Or maybe you lost things this year. Maybe you lost a job and your career changed and you've been flowing with the economy and you had to go through that difficult Faith challenge of where's the next paycheck coming from? What do I do now? Am I going to have to move? Right? Remember those things come up when significant events like a job loss happen. Uh, maybe you lost your retirement in the crash of the economy over the past year. and You've had to regroup and rethink. Now what do I do? Or maybe you lost a significant relationship in your life. Undoubtedly, there are those here this year that are going to be doing Christmas for the first time without someone in their life. Spouse or a relative or someone close to them is not here. And that was a significant 
life events the past year. Or maybe, um, maybe this year was a year of diagnosis for you. I know a little bit about that. And you got diagnosed this year. You heard the cancer word come up in your life. These, these are life events that have an impact on us. Now, how did you interpret those events? Were they, were they good events? Do you look on them and say, I'm glad, I'm glad that happened? Or were they bad events? Were they, were they bad events in our immediate glance only to realize, and maybe years from now realize, that was a good thing? Right? If you live life long enough to realize sometimes you immediately misinterpreted something, uh, have you lived long enough to interpret this one, something you thought was really good, only later to realize that was a bad deal. But I was so convinced that it was good. Right, so how, how do we interpret these things? Um, are, you, are you where you're supposed to be? You know, end of the year, 2009. We're about to have all those TV programs that will come on a year in review. And so there will be nostalgia and you'll remember all kinds of stuff that happened over the last year in the news. And so here you are at the end of 2009. Are, are, you, are you happy with where you are? Are you, are you liking where you are? Do you feel like you're in the right place? Or do you feel like oh, somewhere I, I missed an off-ramp and this has gone on too long? You know, this journey of life that I'm on? Well, for that matter, where's this journey going, by the way? And who's in control of it? How'd you get here with the events? I mean, I'm looking at your faces right now and I know you guys have unique events going on in your life right now. How'd you get here? Who brought you to this place? And where is he going next? I'm going to give us a couple of verses here to help us get in the mindset here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. It says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a great word. If you're wondering about your life and the journey that you're on and, you know, what should be happening at this point, for the Christian, because of the presence of the Spirit of God, ever enlarging freedom should characterize our lives. I may not be able to be certain about whether my bank account should have been this big or this big, whether my waistline should have been this big or this big at this point. But one thing I should be certain about is as a believer, because of the presence of the Spirit of God, ever-increasing freedom should be the characteristic of my life at this point. So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So one thing when we get to the end of this road, this journey, this portion at the end of 2009 here, and we try to figure out what, you know, what is God up to? 
with all these events that have taken place in our lives? Well, he is up to this passage. He is up to transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He is updating the image that is in us to one that looks more and more and more like him. So in whatever it was that God was doing this year in your life, this is what he was up to. Now, this is where the good and bad label comes in, right? Was it a good year for you? Were the significant events of your life, were they good or were they bad? Well, it depends on what you were hoping they would accomplish in your life, right? If I was hoping for a year that, that made me feel a certain way, that gratified me a certain way, that rewarded me in a certain category of my life that I was very interested in, well, then I'm going to interpret whether I had a good year or not based on those things. But if God was at work in my life, to transform me from one degree of glory in my life to another degree of glory in my life, well, then I'm going to look at events a little differently. I'm going to interpret events a little bit differently. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 real quickly. This is a verse that we are often drawing comfort from, and we should. Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we usually stop right there, right? Before you even look further. Most of us may not be aware that the verse goes on and the thought goes on. But we draw comfort from the fact that our life isn't filled with random activity. God is at work. And he is using life towards his end and his purpose. It goes on and says this in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he preplanned, to be conformed to the image of his son. So God God had an agenda going into 2009. And we're about to exit it and go into a new year here. God had an agenda, though, that he would take our lives and he would be at work all year long conforming us to the image of His Son. Shaving off pieces, chopping off pieces, pressuring and moving, using significant life events in such a way that He would accomplish this end. That's what God's been doing. And how we feel about our life is very much about, are we happy with what God's doing in us to bring us to this point? Now, if God is in charge of our significant life events, then there's a purpose to be discovered and and a purpose to be affected by. God's doing something in my life. I, don't, I just don't want to be informed about that. I just don't want to know and somehow generically be aware, okay, yeah, I know God's up to something out there. I want to be affected by the reality that God is doing something, not just in the universe, But God's doing something right here in this address with my name on it. I want to be affected by that. In 2009, I turned 45 years old, beginning of the year. Up to 2009, I was a very healthy individual. I've actually been to see more doctors in the last four months than I'm pretty sure I had in the last 35 years at least. 
I want to say lifetime, and I might be right, but my mother would have to help me on my childhood a little bit. I, uh, I, I've not had any significant health issues. You know, I don't take prescriptions for anything. I don't, never had any surgical procedures, hardly ever done on me. I think I sewed up a cut or something when I was a kid. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a pretty easy go of it in the health category for me over these many years. And then you add to that, I have a 91-year-old dad who is still in incredible health, who's had next to no medical issues in his life. I mean, he's had a couple of little issues, been in the hospital once or twice, but you think, you know, by 91, I'm constantly calling him, and if he, if he says anything about anything, I just kind of say, well, it's about time you got something wrong with you. <laughs> oh, you know, I just can't see like I used to. Well, hey, Dad, something's got to break eventually. He, he describes the, the bucket load of pills that my mom takes. And then he's kind of like, ah, I take this thing here. One? Yeah, I don't even like that. It's, so I, I come from this gene pool that has, you know, doesn't have a lot of bumps and issues in it. So it was a little bit of a, an intriguing moment for me to be sitting in a doctor's office in August and have my dermatologist tell me, I'm going to need to refer you to an oncologist. Now, up until that moment, apart from your lives, having walked with you through issues like that, I wouldn't even know what an oncologist was. It's a cancer specialist. I'm like, what? You're going to refer me to an oncologist? Yeah. My first visit to the oncologist, I, I get educated about my situation. And I'm being told by my oncologist, you, you have what we call malignant invasive melanoma. And I've looked at, you know, she's looking through my file and she's explaining to me, this is all the education you get real quickly right off the bat. Um, you know, I'm, I'm regularly in touch. I'm associated with MD Anderson. Of course, I know what MD Anderson is too because of some of your situations. World-renowned cancer hospital in Houston, Texas. And she's mentioning MD Anderson to me. It's like, you understand... I've only had my lips sewed up when I was 11, you know. Uh, but I'm in touch with them, and I'm going to be bringing your situation up to them in the next conference call that I have. And I, I want to order some tests for you to find out whether you have any uh, cancer masses growing elsewhere in your body. Uh, and, and you're going to need a surgical procedure to take out some of your lymph nodes so that we can see whether you have cancer in your lymph system. Uh, and she's looking through a book now, and she's showing me a chart. And she's saying, because if you do have cancer in your lymph system, then your chances of survival go down to 30%. I'm, I'm still remembering I had my lips sewed up when I was 11, you know. And, and you're telling me uh, I might be sitting in your office with a 30% chance of surviving? This was all of a sudden a significant life event for me. Mr. Healthy, who thought, i got 91 years. I mean, he's still going. So I probably got more than that. Uh, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't get 91 years. Maybe my days are very different than that. Maybe my course is a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. And into this moment comes perspective. That, you know, listen, I know we can all flirt with this idea theoretically. You know, many of us 
me included, would have sat in a chair and listened to somebody's story about that and, and theoretically could have sort of put yourself in that situation. There's something about somebody telling you you have cancer. That word, it does something to you. I've seen interesting quotes about the word. Interesting perspective from a man named David Pallison, who's a very respected uh, biblical counselor. In gaining perspective on the reality that all of us, all of us live a limited life. All of us come to the end of this life at some point. All of us face the reality that death is in the equation for us. And he says, because he was diagnosed with cancer at one point, he says cancer is like a spy that goes ahead of you and comes back and tells you about it. It just reminds you. It reminds you of that which you knew was going to happen. You knew at some point this life ends. Cancer just reminds you that that's a little more imminent than you thought and you were treating it. So into our life, right? for me, this was a significant life event. You had significant life events that came into your life. Now, when it came, how did you respond? What was God doing in that moment? What was he up to when significant life's issues come and they touch us and shape us? Now, last week, uh, I was drawn into Jacob's life a little bit more. We studied a little bit about Jacob, the patriarch in the Old Testament. And we caught Jacob's story sort of towards the beginning, middle section, where Jacob's having a significant life event. Do you remember what we studied last week? Jacob is running for his life. He's old enough to get married at this point, so he's, he's a young man, but, but he's having to run for his life. Because you remember, Jacob had figured out a way, along with his help from his mom, to steal his brother's birthright. Right? The birthright gave you double portions of blessing. It, it set the favor of the household upon you. And Jacob figured out a way to steal that from his older brother. His twin older brother, Esau, was by his dad's plan to receive the birthright. And Jacob steals it from right underneath him and finds himself in a position where now he's got to run for his life. And so when he gets on the run here, he's about, he's about to have an encounter with God. And, and I, want, I want to take us back there in just a moment. But first, first turn to Genesis Chapter 25, before we get to his encounter. But, you know, last week when we were looking at this encounter that Jacob's about to have, Jacob's on the run for his life. I mean, this is a significant life event for Jacob, wouldn't you say? He's grown up in a certain setting. He's been around his family. He probably has a career established based on his family's background. He leaves Beersheba on his way to another location, and it appears as though he's leaving with nothing. He doesn't have any cattle. He doesn't have people traveling with him. And he's going looking for a wife. He's not in a good position because back then you did need to be able to purchase from the dad a wife. So he's in no position to even get the wife that he might be after. So this is a significant life event. And I'm thinking, he's got to be wondering, how did I get here? You know, when you have a significant life event, you ask this question somehow. How, how did I get right here? Is, is, this, is this my doing? Did I, did I make some dumb decision? Did I miss something along the way? Did I put myself in the crosshairs of all this uncertainty and all this fear? Or maybe it was others. Or was it God? 
Jacob's asking all those questions. Because he's got to be wondering. If I hadn't cheated my brother and my dad, where would I be right now? I'd be back home. I'd be amongst safety. I'd be where it's predictable. I would be in a good place if I hadn't done that. I don't know how you got to wherever your significant life event brought you, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do you get melanoma? Well, sun-related, you know, you're out in the sun too much. You know, I was a kid. I was out in the sun a lot. Burned and burned and burned this body over and over and over again. Okay, so how did I get to this point? Was it me? Did I do this to myself? Being irresponsible as a child? Young person? Too much time in the sun? Or Jacob had to be thinking, you know, it wasn't just my idea. It wasn't just my idea to steal the birthright. It's my mother's idea. It really was. <laughs> She's the one who concocted the whole plan. Now, now, Jacob normally didn't need help with events like this. But in this moment, you know, it was a double duo kind of a thing. Mom jumps in with Jacob and the two of them really put together an amazing plan to steal the birthright. So he's got to be thinking, it wasn't just me, it was my mother. And if you read in this passage you're about to look at, you find out that from the beginning, mom and dad had issues in the family. So now he's from a dysfunctional home. So here he is on his own, about to face all this uncertainty and fear is coming into his life. And he's starting to think, you know, how did I get here? How did I get here? It's my parents. It was the way I was raised. It was the dysfunction of my home. that's That's how I got here. And then there's at some point creeping into your question is going to be God. Did God get me here? Now, the answer to all three of those possibilities is yes. How'd you get here? Was it you? Mm-hmm. Was it others? Yeah. Was it God? Mm-hmm. That's how you got there. Now, if you don't answer that question that way, if you isolate and decide, no, I'm here because of one of these, immediately you can't answer the question and you know it. Something in your heart gets problematic with that because you know you did stuff to get you here didn't you your significant life events you did something you know that little guilt in the background that you're dealing with you know whatever it was maybe your marriage blew up in the past year and you're like how did i get here my my spouse that's how i got here but then part of you says "Mm, only partially true you played too and even if you played a small part something in you says i i got me here too and then you're wondering, what a good God. And so, so God, so you and others and God are in your significant events without question. They're all on board. Now look at Jacob for a moment. Because see, Jacob's an interesting guy. Jacob's got to be asking the question, not just how did I get here, but for him probably more likely, how did I get here again? Because stuff characterized Jacob's life. He created scenarios probably quite often in his life. And we learn a little bit about that by learning from the beginning of his life. Genesis 25, we find out that his mother, Rebecca, is pregnant with twins. And these are unusual twins, even when she's carrying them. These two dudes are making her wonder, what on earth have I gotten into here? Verse 22 of Genesis 25. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, there's so much in these passages. But here, God is up to something, right? Even before Jacob draws breath, God is up to something. Jacob, who decided he needed to steal the birthright, if he had just paid attention, God had plans to give it to him. He didn't need a shortcut. He didn't need to lie. God was going to give him the birthright here. We keep reading. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Notice they so they called him. So there's a reason why people name people in the Bible. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob gets his name for a reason. He's not just randomly named. It's not like kind of us. It's like, you know, whatever your last name is, you pick a cute name that kind of rhymes with it. Jacob, whatever. Jacob, whatever. That sounds good. Let's name him Jacob, honey. No, they named people for reasons back then. Right? The Bible commentary says, the giving of names in the ancient world was a significant act. A name was believed to affect a person's destiny. Right? This is why I always checked the meaning of names before we chose them. We're naming children. I just didn't want them named, you know, dies on edge of cliff. That's what that name means. It's like, great. Sounds cool with Collins, but, you know, I was too concerned that, because in the Bible it happened this way. You named them that and they became that. So Jacob, Jacob is a word that he becomes, right? Here's, Here's the actual origins of the word Jacob. I can't pronounce the Hebrew right, but it's Yaakob. Is the word, and it actually comes from a Hebrew word, achib, a verb meaning to grasp at the heel, to supplant, or to deceive. That's the word that Jacob's name comes from. The verb is derived from the noun meaning heel. The first occurrence sets the backdrop for the other uses. After Jacob tricked his brother Esau out of Isaac's blessing, Esau says this. This is what he says in Genesis 27, verse 36. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. His name meant cheater, deceiver. So basically what Esau was saying, he Jacobed me twice. So when when we get to this event here where Jacob's having to flee for his life, from birth, Jacob has been a certain way. So I'm pretty sure he's thinking, I can't believe I did this to myself again. See, when Jacob saw something he wanted, he went after it. And, And if he had to deceive you, use you, supplant you, trick you, cheat you, Jacob would do whatever he needed to do to get whatever it is that he wanted. Right now, I'm glad none of us are like that. Hallelujah. But here's the reality for us to be humbled by. Jacob was, from birth, bent a certain way. There's a terminology in the scripture that talks about a person's bent. 
Uh, it's, it's a word that's associated with the way in which a tree grows. And I've got a great illustration for this in my backyard. I've got one of those old, old live oaks that decided it didn't want to be one trunk. It wanted to be several. So it kind of, from an early age, it was bent a certain way, and it began to grow in three different directions. There's three trunks coming out of one. And so the, apparently the guy, I only found the evidence of this, the guy who lived there before me at some point decided... He didn't want the tree laying down like that and growing out horizontal to the ground. So he decided he would take cable, talking the kind that you tie up barges with, and he would wrap it around the trunk and he would tie it to another trunk that was growing up straight. Now, this is a great sounding idea. I don't discourage the use of this. But when I got there, when we bought the house, do you know what was left of his efforts? A cable that was snapped and that had grown into the tree that, sure enough, was growing that way. <laughs> that tree was bent that way, and there wasn't nobody going to stop it from growing that way. And there's, there's in us these realities that we are bent a certain way. And then we're not all bent the same way. Some of us have a bent to grow this way. Some of us have a bent to grow that way. And, and this is the kind of thing sometimes that sit in us that... You know, today we have different terminologies for them. I call them personality traits. So you get some people that are, that are very quiet, and for, the, for all of their life they will live bent towards quietness. You know, they do not thrust me in front of other people, do not put me on the spot. Uh, I won't even attend a covenant group meeting because I might have to answer a question, right? Do you know who you are? You're bent that way. And all of your life you've lived in the terror of somebody asking you questions in public. Right? Let's just pull some people up here on the platform this morning. Let me just see. I'm going to randomly interview a couple of folks. You know, right now you're thinking, oh my God, why did I come to this church? Right? Because you're bent this way. Now there's other people who would be going, ooh, ooh, pick me. Everybody needs to know my story. <laughs> you know? You'd come up and I'd be having to go, oh, okay, thank you. That, yeah, that, that's enough. Yeah. Can you sit down now? Because um, you're bent differently. And so these things are in us. And they make you vulnerable to sin to come into your life in a certain way. Right? This is always a humbling thing. Because, you know, your bent goes in this direction. And with the tree that grows this way comes two sets of sin patterns. And then the tree that grows this way comes... Three other sets of sin patterns. And and your tendency is to look at your growth this way and look over at that guy over there and say, can you believe that dude sins like that? Can you look at him? Can you even believe it? You know, because you have a different sin set. You know, you're more vulnerable to sin in this direction than that guy is in that direction. But the reality is, from the womb, you were grasping at something. You were after something by nature. There was something in you. Sin was in you uniquely. It was in Jacob uniquely. And it was strong and powerful. And it would characterize his life. Now, in this exchange here, go back now, fast forward to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, Jacob, the trickster, the cheater, has cheated. And now it's put him in the crosshairs, literally, of somebody else. Esau wants to kill him. You stole my birthright. Probably this is, the, this is the straw that broke the Esau's back of living with a trickster all of his life. And finally, you, you've taken from me my future. And he tells him, I'm going to kill you. This isn't brothers playing now. 
This is really a man who's going to take his life. So he flees, and on his fleeing, maybe his first night, he has an encounter with God. God shows up where he is. Remember we looked at it last week. This, while he's sleeping, there's this stairway that leads to heaven, and he notices angels are ascending and descending on it, and God is standing at the top of this ladder and makes a pronouncement of blessing and favor and covenant-keeping with Jacob. Jacob has no idea that God's going to show up in his life and make all these great promises to be kept in his life. Now, remember, he's on the run because he cheated somebody when God shows up in his life and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to care for you. And then look in verse 16. And this is where I kind of want to narrow our focus. After this encounter, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. God was in this significant life event with Jacob. And Jacob didn't know it. Now, he sees it in hindsight. The event is over. God has come and gone. And Jacob looks back on the event now. Now, maybe closer to the event than maybe we are. But my concern is for us that we look back. And are we going to be standing like Jacob and saying, God was in that event with me, and I didn't know it. God was in that diagnosis. God was in the loss of that relationship. God was in that in a way that I didn't recognize it. Oh. Now I wonder how many of those events are happening for us. A lot. God is in all these significant life moments with us. And we missed it. We didn't see it. God had more for us in that moment than we reached out and embraced. Now, I'm going to come back to a change that takes place in Jacob for his life encounter with God. But, you know, it is very gracious of God at certain points, to, to bring what I would call perspective adjustment to us. You had, you had a significant life in your event in your life that's made you just look at the same things about your life, but now you look at them differently. See, if you think about it, most of us, especially as Americans, we, we struggle in life with what I would call a slow erosion of perspective. We just slowly, over time, we just lose perspective on things. And that typically tends to happen to people who have it going too easy for them. They live in the land of prosperity. Everything's going our way. And you just kind of begin to expect everything should go my way more. And more and more. That's just how life should be. And we just start losing perspective. And, and little things become big things. And next thing you know, you got on your hands... Not a couple of significant large things. You've got like 37 big things in your life. 
Because little things now, they're, they're all in the big thing category, right? I mean, it can be significant for you as to how long you had to wait at McDonald's while you're in line, right? And all of a sudden you're dealing with sin. <laughs> right, wait, I got a lot of opportunities to deal with sin. The, the fact that they took two and a half extra minutes, has that grown to a place where, oh, eh, hello? You know, this is how we're responding while we're in line. Why? Because it's an extra minute, right? This is a loss of perspective, don't you think? The majority of the world on the other side of the world doesn't have anything to eat right now. And I'm blown out of the tube because I'm having to wait an extra minute at McDonald's. We have, we have gone through a year where I'm pretty sure every appliance in my house is broken. I'm pretty sure we've got them all. And, you know, in my attempt to keep the cost down of fixing all those things, I have become, you know, I thank God for the Internet. I'm thinking, what did I do years ago when I couldn't find directions on how to fix anything? I probably broke it worse and then called somebody else, which is still kind of what I do. But now I go on the Internet and attempt to fix these things. So all these things have broken. And at some point here, while I'm, I'm feeling this urgency to complain, you know, the Lord is reminding me about what these appliances do in your life and... The years of benefit that you've had, that you can refrigerate your own food and not have to go back and forth to the store to get that because you don't have any refrigeration. You live somewhere where there is no electricity. Uh, and, and what clothing apparatuses do and how things wash this for us. And, and boy, oh, Lord, and when was the last time you said, Lord, thank you? You know, I know the air conditioner is broke now, but, but it's not, it hasn't been two years of sleeping under a mosquito net. Right? This is perspective. I've rescued somebody out of some tropical jungle who's lived under a mosquito net to keep them from getting malaria and said, my air conditioner's broke. Can you believe it? What would that person's perspective be? You got an air conditioner? You know, I mean, they would feel totally different about this event. So, you know, in prosperity, we lose perspective. Next thing you know, we're just complaining about all kinds of things. We have a tendency to let urgent things crowd out important things in our life. And we lose perspective over that. Now, by God's grace, sometimes there are significant life events that sort of come in and reorient us to look at the same life. Life didn't change, but our perspective on it did. Right? You guys remember Katrina, right? Your perspective on your life change? I mean, after that event, I remember things that I would have been worried about or concerned about. I'm kind of like, that ain't a big deal. Something else had shown me what a big deal was. That ain't a big deal. I don't, I don't worry about that. Well, you know, cancer did that for me. Having someone say, you have cancer. I still can't get used to it. Somebody used the other day, Aretha used the other day, um, a cancer survivor. It's like, you know, I want to look around and go, who's that? Somebody else? See, I can't get used to the idea that Mr. Healthy has any issues. But it's a perspective change to have somebody tell you. You have cancer, and your perspective is affected by that. Now, I want to just give a, an example for a moment of, of reflecting on the potential of what I will call an abbreviated life. Because that was one of the things that just jumped out at me in my significant life event. You know, there was, there was too much to talk about today. It was theological issues that jumped out fresh appreciation for the grace of God 
that if my life ended suddenly, there isn't anything for me to achieve in order for me to be okay with God. I, I, I didn't have to worry my way through that. Thanking God for what we believe and trust in, in the person and work of Christ. You know, there were issues of, you know, Keith, where have you let your heart be set? Is your heart set too much on temporary things, on the course of this life, on this being your home, on your own family? Or do you long to be with me? That was a significant question to encounter God through. But there was perspective elements as well of what if you don't have as many days as you thought you had? What if you don't get 91 days, 91 years? You have much less. Well, you know, the scripture speaks to us. And, you know, I have a tendency, maybe you do too. If I think I've got forever, I just kind of get sloppy about stuff. Well, you know, I'll get to that. Well, there was always time for that. Well, that conversation or that thing, you know, you're just sloppy. But if somebody said, you got a week, you got a year, all of a sudden life becomes much more intentional, doesn't it? Because you don't have forever. And you want to make sure certain things count. You know, the Bible says this in Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, so teach us, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us. We have to be taught this because it doesn't come naturally for us to number our days, right? What, what number am I on right now? It's counting down. By the way, yours is two. And maybe I thought my number was 68,427. Tomorrow will be one less. But maybe you get an update that, no, no, it's, it's 2,000 something and something, and tomorrow you get a number less. Teach me, God, to number my days. They are limited. And I will be without them one day. And perspective comes with that. John Piper wrote an interesting article when he was diagnosed with cancer a number of years ago called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he says, numbering your days means thinking about how few there are and that they will end. How will you get a heart of wisdom if you refuse to think about this? What a waste if we do not think about death. See, what the, the cancer spy does is he runs ahead and just comes back. Well, he doesn't come back and say, you know what? You, you probably thought you were going to live forever in this body. I'm just here to let you know that you're not. Well, I already knew that. The cancer spy can't bring you that information. You already got that. The cancer spy goes ahead and says, oh, I'm just here to let you know that that day is closer than you thought. Hmm. What do you do with that? And I know what some people do is any kind of a diagnosis turns us into like running for our life, running for this life. Right? Grasping at this life. We don't want anybody to tell us, don't, don't tell me that. I, I don't want to think, don't you think that way? We're praying and we're believing. Almost as though we're going to elevate into our physical being that the ultimate prize for God to accomplish in our life is to keep us alive in this body as long as possible. Which nowhere does the Bible say that. That's not the ultimate prize. When God started 2009, that was not his agenda. Now, if that was his agenda, and I wanted to interpret how 2009 went, 2009 went terrible. Because somebody told me I had something that would have screwed up God's plan for me, which was to keep me healthy and alive in this body as long as possible. 
Well, that never was God's plan. His plan was to show forth His glory through my life for a little bit of time upon this earth and then for eternity in heaven with Him. And that plan hasn't changed. That's still just as true. But there's a perspective here that I just want to walk through. Maybe this will serve some of the perspective dynamics that we tend to lose. When, when you number your days, what really matters stops getting squeezed out by daily urgencies. When you start numbering, I only have so many days. How do I want to use them? Because life is noisy and pressing, isn't it? It's coming at you full force, and every day it's got more for you to do. But if you number your days, you realize, I don't need to do that and that, and that's not a priority. It sure sounds like it is. It's squeaking, making a lot of noise, but it's not a priority in light of the fact that i only got a number of days left. It changes that. When you number your days, what is a pet peeve to you, that thing that launches you, is no longer worth the disruption. Right now, I don't know what your pet peeves are, but I have, I have certain pet peeve issues. It's not really the McDonald's things. I don't have to leave my home for my pet peeve issues to go on display. There would be, there would be genetic disorders in my home, in my family. Um, somehow, there are people in my home who genetically are not able to put the top back on things. So... Things can get put away without the top on. Things can get left out without the top on. The top could be lost completely. And, I, you know, this is not just, it's not just my children. It's my wife as well. Matter of fact, you know, is this my fault? Others? God? I'm pretty sure I'm out of the equation on this one. You know how some marriages are challenged by whether you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle or the bottom? Ours is challenged by whether or not she put the top back on it. Because if you don't put the top back on, let me just vent all this and get it all out. If you don't, if you don't put, everybody knows this, if you don't put the top back on it, the air causes that which is waiting to come out to turn into like a gummy bear. <laughs> So when you squeeze it out, it's no longer nice and pleasant streaming onto your toothbrush to be used. Now it's going to roll around in your mouth like a wad of rubber. Right? So these are little things, but they matter. My children from an early age were inflicted with CDD, closing the door disorder, can seem to walk in and out of a door, and without realizing you open a door, you close, that's a mantra in our home. You open a door, you close a door. You open a door, you close a door. That's usually what I'm saying. So this is a pet peeve that after the fourth child has just left the door open, just went through it and left it open. At this point, I'm, I know I'm ready to launch, you know, at this point. I'm, I'm going to be in outer space soon. But when you number your days, all of a sudden you realize that ain't worth making a big deal about I don't need to waste my time with that issue and make it a relational dynamic for us when we decide to let our pet peeve out. 
When you number your days, the legacy of what you stood for and what you sowed into others is more important than a moment of ease or passing pleasure. And you find yourself in the moments of your life fighting for, I just, I just want to break, I just want to, just want to be left alone, I just want to be able to relax. And competing with that sometimes is who you're going to be to somebody else. Now, if you had limited days left, would you have wanted to look back and say, I'm just so grateful I filled up my ease, my days of relaxation and time in the hammock. Lord, thank you. I can, go to, I can go to peace with you now in peace. Uh, or who you were to those people that God had placed in your life that maybe taxed you a little bit and drew you out of your comforts. You feel differently about those issues when you number your days. You number your days, making the most of your time more aggressively displaces frequently squandering the time we have. If you think you've got lots of time, especially young people, I, I still think I'm young. Um, you start just squandering. You've got lots of time left, right? You've got lots of time. You've got years and years and years. If somehow... We could be taught to number our days. I could get a mind of wisdom and say, that's not how I'm supposed to think. I'm supposed to see my life with limitations on it, so I make wise use of the time. You number your days, you start saying the things that one day you'd wish you had said. Usually it's at a funeral. Usually it's you're on your deathbed. You call all the people to you. You say to them what you'd wish you'd always said. See, that's what numbering your days does. I got, I got a week left. All of a sudden, we need a family meeting, and I need to say what I hadn't been saying for the last 35 years. Well, if you number your days, you start saying it before you run out of days. If you number your days, you discover how to cherish moments that contain both pleasure and some form of irritation or difficulty. Hopefully you figured that out. That don't they just kind of go hand to hand? I'm going to back to back. But it very much depends on your perspective on them. Because we're willing to put up with irritation and difficulty if our perspective on, an, on something is right in order for the sake of that which is enjoyable in it. And not just be walking away from something that should have been great and just irritated. Why did that go that way? That wasn't worth the effort. When you number your days. Now, when we walk through these events, whatever yours is, there's opportunities here. Because God is in these places with us. God was in that. God was in that for Jacob. But Jacob didn't figure it out fast enough. But Jacob was not going to make that mistake again. And I hope we won't either. I'm going to just run you through Jacob's life real quickly. There are Two events. The next one we want to pick up is in Genesis 32. Two events take place for Jacob. He is running for his life from Beersheba into a land that his distant relatives live in. At some point, some commentators say 20 years later, some say 40. At some point, Jacob is going to come back now. So he's going and he's coming on these two events here. In the first one, God shows up and he realizes it and recognizes God was here and I didn't know it. And then a bunch of significant things are going to happen in Jacob's life, right? Here's a fast forward of Jacob's life. He moves and settles in a new land. Totally new circumstances, unfamiliar settings. Can you imagine the significant events that went on in that place for him? 
Right? Maybe you moved here and you've had change go on in your life and you've got to figure out how do I do this life with new people in it, different address, different job. I'm not familiar with this setting. He gets there and it doesn't take him too long for him to fall in love. And he falls in love with Rachel. And now, now there's something Jacob wants. You do know you become a different person when you want something, right? You don't want anything, you're one way. But when you want something, you're a different way. Jacob is having a significant event here because he wants Rachel. And he's willing to go through all kinds of hoops to get her. Jacob gets defrauded in an agreement with a relative. And you all had that event happen this year? No, you don't have to raise your hands. Could be your relatives are here. But, you know, he makes a deal with Laban, who's going to be his father-in-law for Rachel. And, well, you know, when Jacob meets Laban, he meets his soulmate. Laban, I'm not sure what Laban's name means, but it, it, he's a trickster, too. He's a cheat. So, and this is interesting, you know, we tend to find ourselves, right? Have you found yourself out there yet? You tend to get around people who sort of, yeah, sowed that, now I'm reaping it. So Laban's one of Jacob. He's a cheat. And Laban sees an opportunity and he cheats Jacob. And so here is his future father-in-law rips him off and gives him the wrong daughter. And he has to work for another seven years, right? He made a promise for seven years for Rachel. The end of seven years, finally. And Laban cheats him. He's got to work another seven years now. He's been defrauded in this deal. Jacob works a job that he's trapped in. <laughs> Ever been trapped in a job? Right? I mean, that was your significant event this past year. Jacob gets married. That's a significant event. Jacob has children. Those are significant events. Jacob becomes a successful businessman. Partly because Jacob knew how to take advantage of you. And he did. And he became quite successful at what he did. Jacob had to flee for his life. And this is an interesting little note about Jacob. Because at some point here, Jacob's done with Laban and he wants to go on now. He wants to go back home after however many years it's been, at least 20 years. He wants to leave Laban and go back home. And it's interesting when he actually does go to leave. That's what it says about him in Genesis 31. He's packed up all of his family. He's taken all the herds that he's created through his business transactions. And really God's favor has done this as well for him, though. And he says in verse 20, it says, And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And later on, the first thing that Laban does when he catches up with him, he says, You tricked me. You wonder if he didn't say, You Jacobed me, like his brother had said. Rightly are you named. This dude is still a trickster. And he can still pull a fast one on you and you won't know what happened to you. And that's what he does. But in chapter 32, something is about to significantly happen to Jacob. Jacob's now returning. He's been gone. He's now returning. But to return to this land of his family, guess who he has to face? Esau, who is... Last word was, Esau is going to kill me. And I'm coming home. Is Esau going to kill me? And he's scared to death and he is seeking God now. And on this night before, he sends his family ahead and he spends the night alone. Verse 22, chapter 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. 
He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, just touched him. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, Jacob wasn't going to let this happen twice. The first time, the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. This time, he knows it. And I'm not letting you go until you do in me what you came to do. Verse 27, and he said to him, this is what the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, says to Jacob. What is your name? He said, Jacob. Remember, back here, names meant something. What he was answering was, that's who I am. I'm a deceiver. I'm a trickster. All my life, I've cheated one person after another. That's who I am. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In this significant encounter with God, Jacob becomes free of Jacob. After all these years, all that God has done, God has brought him to a place where he encounters God and God says, no longer will that be who you are. So this was such a significant thing for God to do in this man's life because he wasn't just giving him a cute name. He was telling him, you're different now. I'm changing you. And what, what I love about this story is the Bible actually says he wrestled with God. He wrestled with God. I, I don't take that he'd ever done that before. There was something in Jacob that knew, I will not let go of you because you're not done with me. Now listen, this would go back to my concern for us. God was with us in significant things that happened in our lives individually in 2009. He was with us. Did I know it? Was I the first Jacob or the second Jacob? Did I hold on to God and say, God, I will not let you go. Finish what you started in me. I will not let you go. Now, let me make this clear, because sometimes our theology gets in the way. Theology is a good thing. But sometimes we don't use it correctly or don't understand it correctly. Do you understand Jacob is a man under the grace of God? 
Sometimes we think, oh, he's an Old Testament character. Jacob is a man under the grace of God. God is dealing with Jacob out of grace. The law is yet to be given at Sinai. God's involvement with Jacob, where did that come from? Because he offered enough offerings? Remember, before he makes a pledge that I'm going to give you 10% of everything you do in my life, I'm going to give it back to you. God's already shown up in his life and God's already made all those promises to him. Jacob's a grace man. God said, Jacob, just like I told your grandfather Abraham, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. Right? And, and, and Jacob testifies to this. This is a great passage. You might want to meditate on it. In chapter 31, where he's, he's telling his wives, we're leaving. Laban is, is after me, uh, but we're going. And he's recounting the grace of God in his life when he tells his wives this. Verse 5. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me all this time. Listen, this is an interesting revelation of the grace of God. He's still Jacob at that moment. A deceiver, a trickster, a cheat. And the God of Israel, who we would come to be known as, has been with him all this time. A deceiver and a cheat. And how many of us are waiting for us to clean our act up so God can hang around with us? That's not what Jacob did. He goes on and he says, You know that I served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages. In other words, Hey, Jacob, you can have all the spotted animals. And normally... Herds very seldom produce spotted animals. So for Laban to be so generous, Jacob, from now on, my buddy, you get all the spotted ones. This was a no-brainer for Laban. He's getting a deal here. You're going to work for something that hardly ever appears. Well, watch what happened. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. <laughs> and if he said the striped, all right, you're getting too many spotted ones, you can have all the striped ones now. Well, if you said the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. <laughs> Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Now, why would God do that? Jacob's as big of a trickster as Laban is. Because Jacob is under the grace of God. And God has chosen to have favor on him. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Remember that place, Jacob? Where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Listen, God can show up in your life with favor upon your life. People are doing you wrong and you start thinking... What do I do? These people's wronging me, changing my wages. They change my job description. I'm not going to get that promotion. They cut my commission. Right? And you guys been here? And yet God shows up because He's chosen favor for your life. What a great thing. You don't have to worry about somebody who's going to wrong you, take advantage of you, sin against you. Jacob didn't know all that Laban would do to him, but you know what? It didn't matter. 
Because God had chosen favor upon his life. Now, this is a man who is under the favor of God. God has chosen to lavishly do in his life. But listen carefully. Being under the favor of God doesn't mean you don't have to wrestle. Because there was something in Jacob's life that it certainly appears as though the presence of God was about to go. Jacob could have said, oh, he could barely walk at this point. He could have just said, boy, that was an experience with God. (laughs) Can't walk. God's presence goes. And he's still Jacob. But there was something to be said for wrestling with God where Jacob, after all these years, becomes Israel. A different man. Now listen, I can look at my life events and I I have a concern for me. Lord, did did I wrestle with you to get everything you had for me through that? Because you were in that. And I don't want to say you were in that. And years later, I didn't know it. I missed it. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was distracted. I was too busy. God's doing something in our lives. I want to make sure and wrestle from Him. God, all that you have for me in this, I want to be able to receive. Now, Jacob's life was on a trajectory from God that he didn't know much about. He didn't realize all that was going on. It's back from the original prophecies. Remember that the Lord said to her, to his mother, two nations are in your womb. See, God was doing something that was bigger than the borders of Jacob's life. And listen, that's how God does in our lives, too. What God does today in this moment of your life, it's bigger than the borders of your own life. It extends into other people's lives. And listen, it will extend when you're gone. Because God did something in you that became something in somebody else that will outlive you into the lives of those that you've influenced, into your children, into their children. As the life that you live, prepared by God, affects you in such a way that you become a minister of this God into somebody else's life. And that work of God outlives you. There are two nations in your room. There's just not two people here. There's a nation. I'm preparing a nation. This is mind-blowing. Matt, go ahead and come up. Let me close with this verse. Genesis 35. Turn there. Verse 9. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Haram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place there 
that he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. That's where he started. That's where he came back to. But God turns around and says, a nation and a company of nations, Jacob, is in you. And you understand, Jacob may not thought it important that his series of events in his life and his encounters with God, well, you know, how did he interpret that? All about himself? See, God was up to something. God was up to building a nation that would be in covenant with him. That would come from one man, Jacob. Now listen, God's doing something in your life and in my life. And it may be that what God needs in order to move me from one degree of glory to another so that his purpose through me might take place is that I needed to hear somebody tell me this past year, Mr. Healthy, you have cancer. And we're going to need to monitor your body every six months to make sure it's not grown back. And you're always going to live. I remember when I shared this with Danny Jones. Danny had tongue cancer. And he said, every time I go to the dentist and the dentist does a check on me, it's a moment of faith. Because it's possible that he could say, Danny, I see something here I'm concerned about. All right, so those of you who have walked through the ongoing cancer check, it's, it's a moment of faith, isn't it? Because you walk into that office and you wonder, what will they say to me when I walk out? Am I still okay? Or will they say, we see some things we're concerned about? Well, that, what that does for me, it teaches me to number my days. That's not a bad thing. So if what God needed to do in my life was to say, you know, Keith, in some ways, I want you to stop being Keith. I want you to become something else. I want you to become someone in me. Now, you're not right now. And to do that, I'm going to number your days. I'm going to number your days by telling you that you have a limited number of them. Well, I can stand and say, I can say honestly, I can stand and say, God, thank you. Thank you for not letting me waste time. But... I can also stand and say, I have not wrestled with God enough. There's more for me from God in this moment. There's, there's more, I suspect, for you as well. Don't let God go. Whatever it was that hurt you deeply this year, whatever thing affected you, Powerfully, it was a significant life event. Don't let God go. Let Him bring more revelation. Let Him bring a deeper sense of conviction. Let His promises come more to life in you. Let freedom more characterize your life in that category than it ever has. Listen, there's some of us here, don't you just want to be done being Jacob? Oh, there's stuff about me, the more I live, it's like, oh, Lord, I, I, I've always been that way in that category. I've always been that way. And I hate that about me. You're paying attention to your life enough to notice that there are some things about you that just have always been. If 
your, mother, your mama had, had insight, she'd have named you that. Probably named you Dirty Room or something. I don't know. <laughs> but oh, for the day when we wrestle with God and God says, no longer. Enter into the freedom of no longer being called Jacob. Let's stand up together. Lord, our memories are filled with significant life events. Some of them crowded into this past year. Some of them on a different day in the calendar. But nonetheless, they have affected us. They have spoken to us and they continue to speak. Lord, those are not random chance events in our lives. For you are intentional and you are at work conforming us, shaping us, pressing on us from one degree of glory to another, conforming us into the image of Your Son so that in us You might look and say, no longer, Keith, I see my Son. I see my Son in Your life. I see His image God, this morning we would want to posture our hearts to end this year and to begin yet another. Aware that you have been with us in these events. Surely God was in that doctor's office. God was in that marriage. God was in us having yet another child that Maybe has made things different. God was in even a divorce. God, you were in that with me. And I will not let you go until you affect me, Lord. Put my hip out of socket. Change who I am, Lord, because more than other people needing something from this event, God, I need something from you. I need to receive from you. I want to live in a new day, God, with a new name, with newfound freedom that I've never known to this point. God, don't be done with me yet. Don't move on, Lord, yet. Do in me a deep, lasting work that might become who you had planned for me to be and my life might be more than just my own. It might be a nation. It might be others. It might be influential and effective. For you have first changed me so that you might change others. Lord, this morning, give us fresh faith. Lord, I thank you that I can pray that prayer not on the back of a guy like Jacob that none of us can be like. Not fortunately. Most of us are already like Jacob. And yet you showed up with great favor in his life 
and faithfulness to him. Lord, that's true for us today. You have chosen mercy for our lives. So, Lord, I have every reason to believe that in this room, those who have failed a hundred times, who feel uninspired in light of that, to try once more, have reason to believe, but God is with me. And He is for me. And He is faithful, though I have been faithless, though I be a cheater. He is my faithful God. Lord, let 2000 or 2010 that's coming here. God, let it be a year of name changes in this building, God. God, let it be that for some, we will no longer be known for that which we have apologized for too many times. For you would have done in us the work that you set out to do long, long ago. When you called us to be your own. You are our faithful God. You will be faithful to us yet again in this coming year. In Jesus' name. Amen.